Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Thanks for joining us for episode 17 of the podcast, in which we head to Mongolia, and I'm so excited about this episode. Yeah, me too. Mongolia is a landlocked sovereign state in East Asia. It's sandwiched between China to the south and Russia to the north, and it's the 18th largest and most sparsely populated sovereign state in the world. It's known for nomads, gurs or yurts, and very protein-rich food. And vodka, obviously, with the, you know, Russia yep. being yep. there. Russian connection. Well, we will hear about the diet in our chats coming up. Now, why I'm so excited about this episode is Baku. He, or Buku, he studied as a master student at the Music and Dance Conservatory of Ulaanbaatar. Am I right there, Phil? <laughs> you don't sure. know. Yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. He will join us live in the podcast studio to demonstrate the art of throat singing oh, no. by performing the camel song. The camel song. Okay. Can't wait. Bloggers Goats on the Road take us through their trek in Mongolia, describing it as one big campsite. Landscape and travel photographer Genevieve Turl used Facebook to find like-minded travellers to explore Mongolia with her, but she got there first and then used Facebook to right. find people to travel with. And while there is no surfing in Mongolia, we do catch up with Liz from Soulcatcher Expeditions who wanted to share the work she's doing with locals in PNG after hearing our podcast on Peru. And there kind of is a little bit of a segue because Soulcatchers is planning to do something in Mongolia, so she touches on that as well. So was plenty it, to come. Was it the word landlocked that gave you the clue there was no surfing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not really right. Yeah, right. <laughs> plenty to come. Let's get the episode underway. They with your quiz question. All right. Recently, we've all seen the, those amazing pictures of the Kilauea volcano erupting in Hawaii. This is an easy one for US listeners. How many islands are there in the Hawaiian group in the state of Hawaii? How many islands? Answer at the end of the episode. Phil, this man was the runner-up for the World Nomads Photography Scholarship in 2016. He spent nine months living and working in the Mongolian countryside. Would you like to introduce him? Dmitry Staszewski. Did we get it right, Dmitry? Staszewski. Oh, no! <laughs> we are quite hopeless. hopeless. Now, I'm fearing, <laughs> I'm not fearing, I'm feeling that we could roam far and wide with this chat. As we've been communicating, you've got video recordings of music, Mongolian music, but you're also able to chat about LGBTQ culture and yeah. the pollution problem. Can I ask a first question? Why did you decide to go to Mongolia? Yeah, great first question. I did a lot of backpacking and camping growing up in uh, outside. Or I grew up in San Francisco, and there's just a lot of great outdoors near there. And so I just always loved backpacking and became pretty interested in nomadic cultures when I was in college, kind of through just backpacking. It was very serendipitous, but I was watching a few different documentaries that all happened to do with Mongolia. And then I was just like, oh, I would love to go to Mongolia, but I'll probably never get to go. And I looked up a stu like study abroad programs, Mongolia on Google. And the very first one that came up was like this perfect program. And I, I thought it was a scam at first, but it turned out to be a great program. <laughs> it was like, it was like, you're going to stay with a nomadic family and you're going to work in the city and then you get to do an independent project. So it just seemed like too big. It seemed too good to be true. So what's it like living with a nomadic family? They're, basically their whole day revolves around the schedule of their animals. You have to wake up really early uh, to, it's like 
and, and it's also very seasonal. So in the time in the spring is when the babies are being born. So a regular spring morning, you wake up very early, um, kind of wake up animals in a really calm way. Um, and then once they're awake, you start feeding the babies and then separate the, the babies from the adults and kind of go about your day feeding, make, making sure everyone, all the animals are fed. It, again, it's just like life completely revolves around animals and making sure that all the animals are doing well. We'll share your page in our show notes, but it's titled Young Young Mongols, a 10-part video series updating foreign perceptions of Mongolia, and you served as the primary uh, videographer for the, for the series. What do you mean about updating foreign perceptions of Mongolia? Obviously, what we're first talking about is my work with traditional music and nomadic herding culture, uh, but I've, I got the impression that outside of Mongolia, people only... That's pretty much all they know is about nomadic herding, you know, Genghis Khan, the, you know, Mongolian Empire. Those are the things that people know about. But of course, Mongolia is a place that exists today in 2018. uh, And Ulaanbaatar, the capital, is actually a pretty modern city. You know, there's there's certainly it's certainly developing. It's in a stage of development. So there are certain things that you wouldn't see in another city. But It's just a contemporary city like anywhere else. So we just wanted to show some of those, some of what young people are doing. Uh, I worked with my producer, Aubrey Menard, who is a great friend of mine, um, and she coordinated a ton of interviews. So we were filming uh, everything from talking about the LGBTQ community to the media climate or food culture in Ulaanbaatar, so like really a wide range of subject matter. So tell us about the LGBTQ community in Mongolia. Um, I, I think it's pretty much like an LGBTQ community anywhere else, you know. There, but I think that Mongolian culture, not so different from American culture, at least with just from my own culture, uh, people have a hard time coming to terms with queer identities. So we worked with some people who worked for the LGBT center in Ulaanbaatar. And what is really exciting there is how much impact that one NGO has had. They've really been able to enact some legal changes very quickly. Moving on to the the web package that you did exploring the pollution problem, which was uh, multi-award winning, by the way. Um, Tell us about that, the City of Smoke. Yeah, thanks. Um, So that was, I was working with a friend, Peter Bittner, um, and it was his uh, master's thesis project for uh, his program at Berkeley in California. Ulaanbaatar has some of the worst pollution in the world. During the winter, on a really bad day, the pollution levels can reach four to six times as bad as Beijing. So that's that's incredibly bad. What we learn is that when you have those levels of pollution, there are huge health implications to young children, old people, and then to babies. And depending on where the winter falls during a pregnancy, they can have different problems, whether it's, uh, yeah, I forget which it is, but like if the winter is early in the pregnancy, they could have like brain 
damage, and if it's late in the pregnancy, they would have uh, bone damage, like structural damage to their bodies. But what's causing um, it? What? Where does the yeah, pollution yeah, okay. come from? Yeah, sorry, let me back up. Um, so Ulaanbaatar is a unique city in that there's this constitutional right that every Mongolian has to a certain size plot of land. And so how that, so what hap, has happened is that people will claim that those plots and over the past uh, about two decades, the city has exploded. So Mongolia has a little over 3 million people and almost half of those people all live or, or half of them all live in Ulaanbaatar. Because there was no infrastructure created for those homes, they're burning coal in these traditional gares, which is a Mongolian version of a yurt. So in the countryside, they would burn the dried dung of their animals, which has almost like, you're just burning grass, basically. Um, but in the city, obviously, they don't have access to that. So they're burning raw coal. And a, a family could burn between one and two tons of coal per winter and so there are about 300,000 homes like that so you're talking about 300,000 tons of raw coal in the air that's amazing and it just in my mind just doesn't sit against all these you know the nomadic herders throughout Mongolia and the music that you're talking about it's almost like yeah. two different versions of the country yeah yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Now, on your website, too, you've got a Mongol music archive, but later in this episode, we are going to have a performance by Baku, who is a um, Mongolian throat singer. Amazing. He's going to be live in the studio, so... I'm so eager to hear him. I've, I've, I've never that's seen awesome. it live, and I just... Yeah. It's and going to be great. He, he, was a, he was a massive deal um, on the music scene in, in Mongolia, so you obviously love the Amazing. music as well. Yes, of course. I was in Mongolia for nine months on a Fulbright scholarship, um, and my project there was recording traditional music performed by nomadic herders. And so the, the distinction that I made was that you have these nomadic herders who use music as a part of their daily lives. And as traditional music has become kind of more popularized and become more of a formal training practiced by professional musicians, these performances by nomadic musicians who might not always be as technically skilled, but are definitely skilled in other ways, um, are becoming devalued. So my, my idea was just to capture examples of these recordings in the environment. I like the guy with the eagle on his shoulder. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, the eagle hunters are ethnically Kazakh and they live in Western Mongolia. And I loved working with them because they really taken a hold of preserving their ethnic identity, um, partially because they've seen how much foreigners have gravitated to it. So to a certain extent, they've been able to kind of capitalize on these aspects of their ethnic identities, these traditions that they have, the amount of eagle hunters has like rapidly increased because it's become this much more uh, popularized icon because of tourism. Uh, <laughs> and, think, let, and let's face it, having an eagle on your shoulder it looks bloody good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. But it's, it's, cool. it's cool because at the end of the day, training one of these eagles is a ton of work. So if I've, I've just heard some criticism of like, you know, oh, the tourist culture is the only thing propelling these eagle hunters. And it's like, if you have one of these people explain to you just how much work it is to catch and train an eagle, 
like it's not something that they're really profiting off of you know what I mean it's yeah, it's really, really cool. Well, I knew we'd venture okay. far and wide in this chat, Dimitri. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you guys for having me. Um, I really appreciate being on the show. Landscape and travel photographer Genevieve Turl used Facebook to find travellers to explore Mongolia with her. But what drew her to Mongolia as a solo traveller? I left my job and decided that it was time to take a career break. And uh, first I went with my family to Samoa on holiday. And then I came back and I was thinking about where I was going to go on my own. Um, And I came across a lonely planet for Mongolia that we'd bought about 10 years ago when we were thinking of doing a cross-country trip from Europe back to New Zealand, um, which we never ended up doing. But we still had the lonely planet from it. Um, And so I thought, actually, that's a really great idea. You know, I can go on my own and... um, and make the most of it. So the next day I actually booked the flight to Mongolia and I left uh, three weeks later. And I think I spent the next three weeks going, uh, what have you done? (laughs) Um, Doing absolutely no planning whatsoever. Um, And so I arrived in Mongolia um, with a 10-year-old lonely planet um, and no plan whatsoever um, and a couple of Facebook groups that I'd found of other travellers looking for people to join up with them. And that's a, and a first night accommodation. And it's, um, yeah, that was pretty much how I started my trip to Mongolia. After that first night, what happened and where did you go? So I, I had kind of shortlisted down to two people that I thought looked interesting to contact. Um, and one of them was heading off for six days around central Mongolia and I thought it was a, a, a Finnish couple, so I thought that sounded kind of safe. Um, and so I contacted them, and it turned out to be um, a 33-year-old Finnish guy and a 22-year-old German guy, um, and not a Finnish couple after all. <laughs> um, and so I headed off to central Mongolia with them and uh, two other girls. Um, and, yeah, despite the rather large age difference between the 20-year-old, 2-year-old German and I, Um, we decided to do a second trip together across Mongolia. Um, And he wanted to go to the Potanin Glacier, which is on the border of China and Russia, and said, do you want to come with me? So, yeah, okay, sure, why not? Um, We had similar times that we were leaving the country and um, everything to organise still. So we arranged a trip with the same people who had taken us um, on that first six days, Um, And that was basically just a driver and his van. Um, We didn't take a guide with us on the second time. Um, I did all the cooking. We picked up a a 70-year-old British guy to come with us through one of those Facebook groups. Um, And we headed off, yeah, across Mongolia, actually. What a story. You stayed during your time in Mongolia with local families. What's that like? Paint a picture. Yeah, so uh, actually twice we ended up staying with um, the family of our driver, so once with his sister and the other time with his sister-in-law. Um, his sister's place is in a, a small village. There were maybe a couple of hundred people who live in that village. It wasn't much bigger than that. Um, I can't tell you where it was because it was literally in the middle of nowhere as we did a cross-country trip, um, and we camped out in her backyard. And um, first of all, we were invited into their house with sweets and uh, milky tea. Uh, well, I guess the meal finished with vodka, which was also just as compulsory as the milky tea. Um, and in between, she made us this most amazing dinner where she had 
uh, a sheep that had recently been killed and uh, she took the bones of the sheep and put it into this huge kind of like a wok over a fire that was in her kitchen um, and she made a soup from that uh, and then actually the husband made these massive noodles that are kind of to describe them like making a, a big pizza base um, in terms of size and they were spread over the whole top of the of the wok and they uh, they steamed rather than really sat in the water. Wow. So we had um, – there, there are very few vegetables um, that we had, and the whole time I was there I think I ate potatoes, carrots, turnips, um, cabbage, and occasionally tomatoes and capsicum. So um, quite a heavy diet, but there were – you know, we had – we were cutting the um, – we got a little knife each and cut the meat off the bone and had that with these amazing noodles, which was – and soup. Yum. And finished it with vodka. So. <laughs> so how did the soup, the milky tea and the vodka all work in your tummy overnight? <laughs> um, not so well for my travelling partner, but I think I've got quite a good constitution after living in India, so I don't tend to have too many problems with stomachs. How would you describe Mongolian people? Um, super friendly and um, interested in um, in you and in meeting new people. Um, the guide that we had on the first six day trip was a was a young girl in her early twenties um, who we befriended. I'm still connected to her on Facebook and still chat to her on Facebook sometimes. Um, and uh, uh, she took us out both in Ulaanbaatar, you know, both times that we went back to the city. Um, we took her and one of her friends out even um, so that he could practice his English. So, um, you know, very welcoming, very hospitable, come into our home. Um, yeah, we had that quite a, quite a lot in quite a few different places as we travelled around. What kind of traveller does this destination appeal to? Um, definitely those who want to get off the beaten track, um, depending on where you go, more more or less so. Um, especially when we went to Western Mongolia, you know, we were in the car for five days getting to the Altai Mountains in the first place. And some of the roads are, um, at one stage we were following a Google Maps track that looked more like a horse track with a motorbike going alongside us. And, you know, we went around a car that had stopped to have a, a vodka as a, as a snack on the way. Um, so definitely ones who are quite comfortable with letting go because somebody else is driving for you um is comfortable with roads that are you know really not really roads yeah um and is open for yeah what is truly an adventurous destination but one that hasn't changed all that much yet you know if i look to i went to cambodia back in 2002 and how much ankle what has changed between then and now you know, Mongolia is still a place that you can get a quite authentic experience relative to um, a lot of other destinations, actually. Links to Genevieve's amazing photography, including Mongolia, in our show notes. But, Phil, what's happening in travel news? Okay. Oh, look, I promise I'll get to some fun news in a moment. But first, a couple of stories that um, kind of serve as a bit of a warning. It's quite sad, very, very sad. A British woman has been sexually assaulted by multiple staff members at an Italian resort after having her drink spiked. Five men have been arrested by police in Sorrento, down on the Amalfi Coast, for their part in the attack, which happened back in October 2016. It's taken that long to 
uh, make an arrest. The woman said she was drugged by a drink handed to her by two of the barmen. Never accept opened drinks or drinks that you haven't witnessed being poured yourself. You've got to try and avoid this horrible plague of drink spiking. Never leave your drinks unattended. And if the first signs of trouble, you'll start to feel unusually intoxicated for the amount of alcohol that you've had. Get to your friends or get out of there and get to somewhere safe because it probably means you've had your drink spiked. Shocking mm. stuff. The second terrible story, and because we support adventurous travel, this is you know, very worrying. Two European men, both travelling the world by bicycle, have been murdered in southern Mexico. Their bodies were found at the bottom of a cliff in the state of Chiapas. At first, police dismissed their deaths as an accident on the winding mountain road, but protests by other cyclists and travellers in the nearby towns led them to investigate further. The men were robbed, murdered, and their bodies thrown from the road. The men had met in the town of San Cristobal de las Casas and were cycling to some Mayan ruins about 130 kilometres away. This is a really popular uh, uh, sort of backpacking route there to go and have a look at those ruins. I've got to say, not everywhere in Mexico is dangerous, although there are some states which it's best to avoid because of drug gang violence. Chippas is not one of them, uh, but could be soon because of a series of robberies on that highway leading to the Mayan ruins. Police have stepped up patrols on the highway. They can't be everywhere at the same time. True. A Boston-based tour operator which organises safari tours to the Serengeti in Tanzania, Tanzania, uh, has been accused of complicity in a scheme to drive traditional Maasai from their lands to make way for more tourism. Thompson Safaris has strenuously denied the allegations and there's a lot of evidence that they've invested heavily in infrastructure in the region there. So I think they're sort of being the pawns in the game of this one. Wow. But a second company based in the UAE organises hunting trips, actual shoot-to-kill hunting trips for members of the royal family. They're also accused of of implication in this as well. So it's trophy hunting kind of stuff. Trophy hunting stuff. Gee, this has been depressing. I am sorry. Okay. All right. Well, but anyway, this California think this is really interesting though because yeah. this California think tank which has raised these things, they fight for social justice and they say they've been uh, the Maasai have been run off their lands, um, and people are using the excuse of we need to do it for wildlife conservation when in actual fact what they're doing is like colonising the land so they they can then on sell it for tourism purposes. So it raises the question as if you're going to go on something like that, if you're going to go on a safari like that on traditional lands, you've got to make sure of the credentials of the company that you're going with. That it's ethical. That it's ethical. It's a really tough one there. That That is um, – I thought you said you were going to get to some fun stuff. Well, kind of. Did you see – <laughs> speaking of safaris – I'm sorry, it is a bit depressing, isn't it? Did you see the video of the family who got out of their car in I a did. Dutch – Safari drive-through safari park to take photos of the cheetahs. Did you see that? I did. Video? I did. <laughs> the cheetahs start stalking them because you know not only they're two adults there, but they're carrying their baby. <laughs> oh, I didn't know they had their yes, baby. They had a baby in arms. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh. That's even crazier. I know. It's like, you know, what's that, the Darwin Awards? It's like self-selecting. Oh, you did finish on something fun. Thank you. Although that is... It's pretty serious as well. I'm sorry. I'll have more fun next time. Cheers for that. Back to Mongolia and bloggers Darius and Nick, otherwise known as Goats on the Road. Now, why do you think they call their blog Goats on the Road? No idea. Because everywhere they travel, they're Goats on the Road. Oh, okay. 
They take us through a trek they undertook in Mongolia. And just a heads up, there was a little bit of interruption to the Skype call as we kicked it off. This trip to Mongolia, we knew we wanted to do some some epic treks. I mean, the country is just wild and raw. It's so, a big campground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's one big campsite. So we wanted to go in and figure out how to kind of get out there. And so we just looked on Google Maps, actually. Uh, we didn't read any blogs or see anything on any websites before. We just kind of went on Google Maps and found a river that went between two villages that we knew. There's a hotel in the village at the start and a hotel at the village at the end, and there's a river connecting the two. And so I, we zoomed in <laughs> with satellite imagery. It sounds very like to see the to see the river and how that there's a path. There's no path, but that we could follow the river along the way. Um, and then just from our just basically from Google Maps, we decided, yeah, this is doable. Yeah. And luckily, when we got to the village that we planned to start from, um, there was a guy who owned a little guest house there, and he's like, oh, no, I never heard of anyone doing it, but for sure it's doable. Mm-hmm. And he put us in contact with some people that helped us to kind of plan the route and totally get started on the trek, which was incredible. I think there's there's not really any cities. It's completely like there's Ulaanbaatar, and the rest are called Sum, so the little villages dotted throughout. Um, but the entire country is just empty. Like you'll see rolling hills, rolling stuff, and then in the west you'll see like jagged mountains and stuff. And you're allowed to camp anywhere that you want. So locals do it like they're nomadic and they move around with their gurs, which are like yurts. Um, and then a lot of tourists do it as well. Yeah, like in Canada we would call it crown land. So the it's not privatized. So no one really owns much land throughout Mongolia. The, the only land that's really owned is in certain parts of the cities. And then when you leave the cities, it just seems like it's open for everybody, the, pe- the people on the land. Mm-hmm. So you're allowed to camp, you're allowed to fish in most cases, although you do have to get permits. Yeah. Um, but you can pretty much set up your camp anywhere like the locals do. We heard earlier from Genevieve that a trip to Mongolia is not for the luxurious traveller. Um, I would agree with that statement, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I would add to it that it's also a place that a foodie traveller yes. probably wouldn't want to go. 100%. Or like a vegan especially would really struggle. They eat a lot of meat and dairy. And that's like the staples in their diet. I don't even think we saw a vegetable. Not, Maybe a potato. Yeah, in the in Ulaanbaatar you see some, but mm. no. Outside and of the city. For luxury travelers, you'd be missing. As soon as you leave Ulaanbaatar, you'd be missing pretty much every luxury air quotes that you would want to <laughs> see. When you get out to the to the countryside, it's not luxury at all. It's all about the adventure and like the beauty of the nature and just mm-hmm. interacting with the local people who are really friendly and welcoming and hospitable. Yeah. And. Yeah, and the food is not a, it's not a foodie destination because, like Dorit said, it's all meat and dairy. Yeah. Um, there's not herbs out in the in the steppe. Like when you go down to the Gobi Desert, it's it's a desert, right? And they don't have any imports, so there's no herbs, not a lot of seasoning, mm-hmm. very basic food and very basic accommodation. But that's what makes it kind of adventurous and fun. Well, there was nothing luxurious about the way you guys did it. I think you boiled water for your freeze dried meals each morning. Yeah, exactly. When we did this trek for that for that eight days, that's all we had. With those freeze-dried meals, like you said, we just added hot water. Um, I think a luxury we had was we had some of those instant hot chocolates, didn't we? And we yeah. added a bit of hot water, and that was our luxury on the step. But apart from that, we slept in the tents, just on the ground, on like a ground mat with sleeping bags. Um, tracked on foot, carried yeah. everything, and Nick did some fishing. And we ended up catching a couple of fish, which was a great bit of protein to add to our meals. So. And the cool thing is, is that when you land in Ulaanbaatar or you arrive there by train, like a lot of people do, is there's a lot of things that you can get in the, in the main city there. So mm-hmm. you start your kind of adventures from there as kind of a base. And there's uh, outdoor stores and things that you can buy 
free strand meals, small little compact stoves, gas, all the stuff you'll need, sleeping bags, which you can also rent and not buy. Yeah. Um, but you can do everything, kind of set up your whole kit there while you're in Ulan Batar, and then adventure out from there, which is really cool. So give us an idea of some of the tricks that you'd recommend. In Mongolia, there are, like you mean in Mongolia, obviously, there's a few different areas that you can go to. Um, the Altai is in the west. That's more sort of for the intense traveler. You do a lot of mountaineering expeditions. You have to be really physically fit for stuff like that. Um, high altitude, snowy mountains, that kind of thing. So if you're into that, definitely you want to head west. Um, if you're into more kind of what we did, which was through the steppe and near lakes and rivers and more adventurous and beautiful, but um, for sort of a medium, I guess, intermediate mm-hmm. hiker. Yeah. yeah. Um, probably central Mongolia and Lake Hogsfall is a good area as well. Which Lake Hogsfall is to the north along yeah. the border with uh, Russia. Yeah, and then also near, just 37 kilometers outside of Ulaanbaatar is, is Terelech National Park. Yeah, and Terelech National Park has a bunch of easy day hikes and you can just stay in like a tourist girl or a local girl inside the national park. Mm-hmm. And then they have a bunch of beautiful day hikes around. You can just trek for three hours, one hour, go for four hours. There's even multi-day treks within the park. So that's a good one for like... Um, if you're just starting out or you don't know exactly what to do, yeah. you want to follow like a, a kind of marked trail, then that's the best place. Um, yeah, there's so many areas, literally, like Mongolia yeah, so is a trek in paradise. The whole thing is a trek. Also, down in the Gobi, like when you do it, most people do a Gobi desert tour where they hop on a van or um, some kind of SUV kind of thing from Ulaanbaatar and they travel down into the Gobi for a few days. There's a bunch of day, day hikes that you do while you're on the Gobi trek, or if you want to, while you're doing that Gobi tour, you can kind of do day hikes around or whatever on the way. Yeah, but I think multi-day treks is probably central, yeah. western, and northern, probably. Yeah, totally. And we'll have links to Goats on the Road in show notes. Phil, we've heard about Mongolia's landscape, the people, the music, and one thing is certain, it's not a surfing destination. <laughs> no, it's not. But after our episode on Peru where we talked about the surf culture with Amy from Unleash Surf, we got an email that read, check out our surf trip. We go to Papua New Guinea and build balsa wood boards with the locals. I have immediately gone, what the, about that one? Let's get this person on. Welcome to the podcast, Lisbeth Muse. <laughs> yeah, the, the welcome to Soulcatcher Expeditions. Yes, tell, this is part of your. Um, you organise these very re- responsible, uh, ethical trips to do these amazing things. That's what Soulcatcher does, right? That is correct. We uh, we like to think of our trips as um, beyond the average experience a lot of travel these days you know it's focused on having you know this experiential idea of experiential travel is really big obviously around the world and there's a lot of companies doing it but we sort of take it to the next level you're in the right place here with world nomads because that's exactly what we believe as well you know like it's it's all about the experience that you have and and the way that you travel as well so you know there's a great sort of synergy between the two there. But come on, just tell me, balsa wood boards in PNG, how, it's, what, you source local material over there and um, and it's kind of a community project. How does it work? Yeah, actually, um, we sourced a board maker from Australia. So, of course, yours truly. <laughs> and um, 
And he's been doing this for quite a few years, and he started in Ecuador sourcing balsa wood and then found out that uh, PNG had actually better and more sustainable methods and a stronger um, timber. So they started um, doing this program, and so we sourced the program from them to sort of turn it into a surf trip, and um, we're marketing it to surf companies here in San Francisco and as well out of Australia. Um, so it employs locals in PNG. You know, a lot of their their economics are sort of not like the rest of the world, not even like um, Australia. You know, they're very close to you, but their economics are very different there. So, I mean, one of the things that Soul Catcher stands for is that every tourist is a humanitarian. That's kind of in our ethos and our thinking and how we build trips. and. You know, the reason behind our trips are not just to provide a cool trip. It's to change someone else's life. Also, you know, a lot of people go on these trips to have this life-changing experience. And I think that the conversation around tourism has sort of shifted. I mean, we're working on a trip in Mongolia right now where we had to push really hard to even go get into this area where there have been adverse effects based on tourism. And so we just took a little bit different approach and we're going in on their terms instead of our terms. Quickly, what sort of problems in the area were, had, had tourism brought to that Mongolian area? What sort of stuff? Well, just stories uh, <laughs> that have been relayed to us about, you know, helicopters coming in and visiting tribes. And that's what I'm referring to, those yeah. types of trips that aren't really sustainable yeah. in any way. Yeah. You've mentioned Papua New Guinea and you've mentioned Mongolia and I know you have had or are planning some other trips as well. So what sort of places do you go to? Um, we are focused on a, quite a few trips in Africa right now. So um, without giving too much away, it will there will be a few equestrian trips. We have um, a client that is we're working with to go see gorillas and that's another environmental focused trip. And... An interesting endeavor involving um, farms, so food, farms, um, and chocolate. And so that's another sort of theme out there that we're working on. And um, and in, I guess in closing, I would say another one involving tree houses. <laughs> oh, okay. So we've got, we've got horses, gorillas, chocolate, and tree houses coming up for the year. We'll have a link to Soulcatcher Expeditions and a pick of the beautiful boards in show notes. Now, Phil, let's get the answer to your quiz question now before we introduce our studio guest to wrap up the show. Okay, how many islands in the Hawaiian chain, the state of Hawaii? There are eight. Phil, this is the most exciting part, that I believe, of this episode, the podcast on Mongolia. Buku studied as a master student at the Music and Dance Conservatory of Ulaanbaatar. Ulaanbaatar. I've been practicing that. <laughs> Ulaanbaatar. Ulaanbaatar. Ah! Thank you. And he's live in the podcast studio, as you just heard, to chat about his life. And he's also going to be demonstrating the art of throat singing and, and playing for us. So, welcome. Thank you. So, you've corrected us on the name of the city. What is your full name? Uh, my, my full name is Buchulung Gamburgit. So Buku is yeah, Buku is my short name. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. Yeah, 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 the easy one. Okay. When you when you're in trouble, does your mother use your full full length of your name? No, <laughs> it's 
Yes, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so tell us, how then did you arrive in Australia, which is where we found you here in Sydney at World Nomads Headquarters? How did you come from uh, Mongolia to Sydney? You mean like on the plane or? No, 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 no. no, no, no. Did, did, <laughs> did you, did you so. have to? I mean, you've emigrated here, so. Uh, but why did you pick, why did you come to Australia? So Was it for study or? Yeah, it's a, it was actually my wife's decision most time. Sensible man, well done. And <laughs> she, she wanted to learn English, speak English. And then she decided, uh, yeah, we should go. And then I said, oh, no, I have work here, you know. I'm teaching and perform playing the Philharmonic uh, of Mongolia. And then, you know, why I need to go and then learn new, <coughs> new language, you know. Yeah. And start from the beginning. She said, oh, it's very, you know, important for us, especially for you, because you're a musician, you know, definitely. And I said, yeah, okay, okay, let's do that. And then we we came to Australia 2009. And, yeah, then started for a year for English course. And then my wife started finish the course and then she went to uni for accounting and she's an accountant now. So it was opportunity but yeah. was there a big, I mean you were playing at a philharmonic level, mm-hmm. what happened when you arrived here? Because I've heard that you started busking in one of the Sydney suburbs. Yeah, yeah it's it's very, you know, whole my life. I'm just playing music. I had no idea what I might going to do and I was thinking, my teacher actually told me, if you play your music anywhere, everywhere, you have food. Yep. And then it's st- stuck in my mind. <laughs> That's actually, yeah, I could, you know, I could play street. And then I you know, um, find a spot in Newtown. It's very noisy. But the first time people hear Mongolian music, they're really interested. Every people just stopping, listening, asking so many questions. Then I, I, I really don't understand what they're talking about. Just, <laughs> just yeah, smile. Just smile, and then what should I say now? Uh, yes or no? Yes or no? Maybe yes. <laughs> you know, that kind of, and then yeah, that just yeah, that just you really really hard. So it's a big part of your culture, music. Yeah. Gives a, a taste of the history, because uh, in Mongolia there's uh, lots of different ethnic groups. All ethnic groups have beautiful melodies, and the main instrument in Mongolia is called the Murunghor. Murunghor means horse. Horse means fiddle. Horse fiddle or horse head fiddle or horse hair fiddle. Ah. Because the two strings made up from horse tail. Okay. And then bow is horsetail, which means play with both, like horsetail with horsetail, only one instrument in the world. And there's a lots of, of singing, different type of different ethnic groups singing styles. And also, bird singing was one of the biggest, biggest thing in Mongolia. So do you train to be a throat singer or is it some, I mean, Phil, can you sing? 
I'm not throat sing, but can you sing generally? <coughs> yes, but my children tell me to sharp. All yeah, the time. yeah. I'm terrible. So, at it, so. so I'm totally tone deaf. So is it is it a, is it the case that you you are naturally able to use your throat to create music? Yes, but you need it. You lots of lots of practice for when you when you start learn throat singing. Some of the uh, some of the songs, some of the throat singing goes on quite a long time. Mm. So obviously it doesn't hurt then. There must be, is it a relaxing thing that you do rather than a, a tension? Uh, depends on the songs, but mostly it's very relaxing. But you have to balance every whole of your body. Lots of tightness, lots of you know, blood pressure happening here. I have to balance it. Same time, like you control like 10 things so and, then, and then you... You, you make it like two notes. You have to make it, you know, adjust these two chords. That must be pretty exhausting. <laughs> Listening to it, it can be quite meditative. Is it meditative to the performer? Yes. It's, it's, it's because they're all these throat singing styles. Mostly we, the nomads, the Mongolians, they're brought from their nature. All the styles like from the, like a waterhole or like nice mountains or river sounds all come from there. And then most of the herders, when they're herding their animals, they hear lots of beautiful nature. It's a spiritual thing. Well, you've been so kind enough to not only come and educate us on throat singing, but you're going to demonstrate it for us with your, I call it a horse head fiddle, yeah. and uh, we'll be able to show a picture. It literally does have a horse head on it. It does. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. What do you call it? Murung <laughs> hor. M-O-R-I-N, Murung, K-H-U-U-R, Yeah, best if I don't try then. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, All let's right. Get, let you get your 10 steps together and, um, yeah, it'd be thrilling to hear you perform for us. Take it away. <laughs> one, two, one, two, three. <laughs> Go for it. You ready? Yes, well, absolutely, we're ready, yeah.
Awesome. We will have links in our show notes. It wraps up our episode highlighting Mongolia. Subscribe, rate, share on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher and on iHeartRadio. And you can contact us by emailing podcast at wallnomads.com. Next episode, we're off to Argentina. <laughs> okay, can I beat that though? No. See ya. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.